everybody. I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. What makes a great leader? What qualities does it take for someone to rise up and take charge of others and guide them to a better future? These are questions that have been asked by generations of aspiring politicians, CEOs, and grassroots organizers. Today, we're diving into what makes or breaks a great leader and the journey to get there. With a nation increasingly divided, these qualities are more important than ever. At The Common Good, we work to share with you sharp and informative discussions on the critical issues of the day with the highest caliber thought leaders and experts. For this episode of our TCG podcast, we are very honored to present David Gergen, the Distinguished Advisor to U.S. Presidents and a Professor and Founder of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. Mr. Gergen was advisor to no less than three Republican presidents and one Democratic one. He's a senior political analyst at CNN, and we awarded David our American Spirit Award for Distinguished Public Service some years ago. We're thrilled to have you back, David, with your terrific new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Welcome back, David. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. It's good to be with you. I want to, I appreciate this invitation. But all, more than that, I appreciate what Common Good continues to do for the country. Uh, you know, you've made enormous contributions. You've sponsored a number of conversations that I think have shown that we can talk to each other with respect, as well as just seeking each other's uh, bonding friendship. And how do we how do we move forward together as a country? And the leadership question is front and center in that issue. Uh, do we have the kind of leaders? who can take us to where we need to go. Clearly, we're on an unsustainable path today. And I think the next few years are going to be rough. But my message today is let's also take a look at the horizon because I think out there, there are many signs now, growing signs, that we can put this country back on track. It's going to be hard getting there. It's going to take a lot of perseverance, a lot of commitment. But nonetheless, I think we see growing signs of and, and growing numbers of young people who want to, to see make a change. I don't agree with their politics, the AOC, for example, on the left, but I, but I will salute to the rooftops the fact that people like AOC are getting into the public arena. We don't have to agree with them. What we need is a robust debate, set of debates about where, how to go forward. And we need everybody at that table to debate. We need everybody at that table because if we're not talking to each other, it's very hard to get anything done. And I think that's where we are right now, unfortunately. But your book is so full of helpful ideas for leaders of every stripe with your inspiring stories and examples. There's so much to learn from no matter where you are on that ladder, whether you're working for a community or a nation or running an office. Um, You've worked with many major leaders and studied leadership for years. So since Americans are increasingly concerned about the direction of this country, your book is so relevant and so important. But first, let me ask you about training for leadership. It seems like it's a bit of an art. You make the point that many nations have tried to educate people for leadership, but these efforts have not been successful in China and different places. You quoted Barbara Tuckman, the historian, that these efforts are often stymied, but what she says are the controlling power of ambition, corruption, and emotion. But she falls back on, as you do, character and courage. And you make that point again and again as important for good leadership. Why is it so difficult to educate for leadership? Are leaders born or made and how? Lots of questions. I'm not sure I can answer all of them in the time we have. Uh, but I'm, I'm delighted that you pose them. 
Listen, I do think some people, some people are born with more, um, let, let's say, a natural capacity for leadership than others. Um, but they, but but nobody becomes a great leader uh, with simply just phoning it in. You really have to, you have to make much more of a contribution. You have to spend a lot more time and work, and you have to develop yourself. You know, the critical thing that people forget about leadership is that leadership starts within you. And you're not going to be able to convince other people to go down the track you want unless you yourself are fully committed. Uh, and unless you yourself, under, you understand who you are, you've, you've lived with yourself for some years, you've, you've formed uh, views of how you work, but you have also developed values and you have developed a, a, a way of being in the world. So first of all, a rising leader needs to have self-understanding, self-insight. But beyond that, uh, Patricia, I, I went to work for Richard Nixon way, as a young man, very young man, uh, decades ago. And what I discovered right then, and it's been true since, that Nixon was one of the brightest people I've ever met in public life. He was certainly uh, the best strategist that I can remember and working with Henry Kissinger. Uh, the two of them achieved uh, significant breakthroughs on the, in the, uh, the Cold War. Uh, and there was Nixon could have gone down in history as a fairly good president, had it not been for the fact that he had not that he had demons inside himself that he had never learned to control. And so important in leadership is that you can keep your your demons under control. You you understand others may be threatened by them. There are things that you just sort of you. We are all born with bright sides and dark sides. Carl Jung. Uh, made that those arguments years ago when he was a uh, colleague of, uh, of Freud's. Uh, so you have a bright side and have a dark side. You have to conquer your dark side, or at least have it under control, so that it won't be blow you out of the water. I think today, in today's uh, contemporary life, uh, I think of a, an example that I, a young man, I think that sort of has gone off track, unfortunately, but had such such stardom in him was a young man who went to, his name was Eric Greitens, and he went to Duke, he was, where he was a uh, Rhodes Scholar. He became a boxing champion and then went off to Oxford to study for a couple of years, went on to get a PhD in human rights in, in effect. And he was going to Rwanda, he became a humanitarian for a number of years, wound up thinking that was not what he, all that he wanted. And he, and he signed up for the Navy SEALs, for goodness sakes. And which is one hell of a hard standard to get over. It's really, really tough to become a Navy SEAL. But in any event, Eric got over it and he moved along in life. But then a couple of things happened. One is he ran for and became governor of Missouri. Um, and then there were some disclosures and allegations of scandal, uh, some of which he agreed to, some of which he contested. But it, it, it knocked him off his pedestal. Uh, and it, he's never really fully recovered since. He's running now for a major office for the Senate uh, in, in Missouri. There's a chance he's going to win. We'll see. It would be a big comeback for him. But I can just tell you, when he went off the tracks, it was devastating for him. He, he paid a huge price for it. Um, I, I would be delighted if Eric really sort of returned and, and got back on track. But it, it, it was the number one illustration I have, and I, there are many, many illustrations like that, uh, where someone started in life was, was very promising, you know, had all the qualifications to move forward and move up and look like they could make a real difference in the world. Uh, but, the, but they lost control of themselves. Uh, they, you know, the, their, their success went to their heads in many cases. But in any event, their, their, their leadership qualities crumbled 
and it's now, you know, it's very hard to get back on track, but Eric is trying it. So anyway, all, all of that is to say, before you can lead others, you first be, must be able to lead yourself. Uh, and you must have that under control. And then you can move on and do the, and, and acquire many, many other skills which are necessary for leadership. But start with the question of yourself and your character and your character. Barbara Tuckman wrote about the number one thing she would recommend for society's doing. Nothing worked for a long, long time within a society, but you can lengthen that course. You can make it much better when the people who lead and the people who are in leadership positions are people of character, people we can trust, uh, people who have, will put our, will put principles before politics, uh, people who understand that leadership is a tough business. It's not for sissies. It's really tough. You can get banged around pretty hard. Now, higher up you climb, the more you get banged around. So understand all that. But still, we desperately need a new generation of leaders to step forward. My number one reason for writing the book was to appeal to younger generations. Generation X, which is the people in their, in now into their 40s, even to their 50s, and, but also, and importantly, for the long-term millennials and Generation Z, they're, they're our long-term hope. I, would, I think we ought to be doing a better job of encouraging them to get in the arena. We ought to be preparing them better. But I also think, Patricia, it's very important, it's time for people in the older generation, the baby boomers, and I'm one of the, I'm, I was born during the war, but I've always considered myself a boomer coming right after the war. Baby boomers have been sort of running the country uh, for the last 30 years. There are many fine individuals who are baby boomers, um, and I will always uh, admire their and respect their work. But on the whole, I must tell you that I think the generation of baby boomers has been a disappointment. Some would say a, a, a severe disappointment. They simply haven't delivered uh, an America that is the America we can, we can accept. They're, you know, as, we, as I said earlier, we're on an unsustainable path. Uh, and, and the America we want to create now is going to have to come from new, younger people. We desperately need an infusion of fresh blood, and fresh ideas, fresh energy. And, and frankly, uh, I don't think we need people who are in their 80s running the country at this point. Let me ask you something about that, because uh, being a baby boomer myself, I agree with you that I was raised to be extremely idealistic, much like the generation I see today who are activists. I mean, we, yeah. you know, I was a latter part of the baby boom generation, but I mean, we did the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and against the war and tried to reform um, election processes. And a lot of those things uh, were successes and some of them backfired. But um, what it, what was interesting is how that generation came to be more about um, you know getting ahead or consumerism or other things um, and maybe not taking care of what we need to take care of. So how do we know that this new generation, which also seems to be idealistic and we need them to be, to you know, address these challenges like climate change, which seem to be so difficult to get attention wrapped around. How do we know that this new generation will be any better at that than, than the baby boomers? Well, there are no guarantees. Um, but I think the critical thing, and I try to write about this in the book, um, the critical thing is to, to accept responsibility for the future. Uh, and that we, the older generation, work with them as mentors, as sponsors, uh, as people who can help them think through 
what they're doing. But I think we need to step back from running large organizations. We need it's time to tend, turn over the keys uh, to a new generation who can help us get through this. So it, there is no guarantee. I, what I do think is we need a series of steps that encourage young people to take on greater responsibility. I happen to be a very strong advocate for national service. And that is asking or encouraging every young person between the ages of 18 and 24 to spend at least a year uh, giving back in community, uh, working in school, uh, in schoolhouses, you know, working in hospitals, working as a first, uh, uh, first to the scene kind of for climate change uh, issues when we have so many problems on climate now. Uh, but there are a lot of different ways. If you give a year back to the country or to your community, then we ought to give forgive at least a year, years full of debt for students, former students. You know, you put in the time, you 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 help, you serve, and then we reduce your debt. And you you you, but you earn something. You earn something for yourself, and you and you. I think having the experience of service when you're young. No matter what you do in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, you will come back to the idea of service later on in life. There are going to be times and periods in your life when you're really going to figure out, okay, here's what I can do, um, and here's how I, I can make a difference in my legacy. But I, I, I recently came upon, was told about, and checked out, there was a quote from Thomas Jefferson in one of the letters he wrote, saying, ultimately, we have to take a chance on the new generation. Ultimately, we have to do the best we can to prepare them but we've got to look to them. They're going to make their mistakes, but you know, hopefully they'll pull it through. Um, one of the things that has uh, encouraged me is to listen and, to, and listen to our historians among us. You know, take John Meacham, for example, one of my favorite uh, historians. Now, he has written and has argued, I think eloquently, that we have had times in the past, at least four different periods when the future of the United States was right on the line when we had an existential threat, as it's called, a threat to our very existence as a republic. And John points out, this John Meacham points out, the first one came in the, in the war of the revolution, uh, when people forget that George Washington had in his first eight battles, he lost six of them. He was on the ropes, basically, at one point. It didn't look like he was going to make it through, but he pulled together and a lot of Americans came to his support. And we got through that. Similarly, in the Civil War, you know, we came very close to losing our republic again. Um, if, if the Battle of Gettysburg had gone the other way, uh, the slavery would have extended into the, well into the 20th century. Uh, but it made a big difference. We're taking the, 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 a third real threat to our existence um, came with the Great Depression. Many, uh, many democracies died in the Great Depression. We did not. We were one of the leading uh, nations that, that rallied did a good job and we should be proud of what we did. And that was Franklin Roosevelt and his leadership and leadership of the people around him made a huge difference. Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, made a huge difference. And finally, fourth time was, a, uh, was the Second World War itself. You know, that was a close call too. It was a very close call. Things could have gone the other way with Dunkirk and, uh, and we would have been, might all be speaking German now. We ought to take uh, encouragement and fortitude and perseverance from our forefathers, our foremothers, the people who went through these things before and survived. Uh, Abigail Adams made the, made the point in a letter she famously wrote to her son, John Quincy, who was a teenager at the time, that adversity, periods of adversity, don't weaken people, don't weaken nations. They actually strengthen them in many cases. 
You know, people who go through really hellish time harden inside. They get tougher. Uh, and, you know, there's an old saying that the, the strongest steel comes from, comes from the hottest fire. And we're going through fire now, but we can make it if we stick together and we give a lot of responsibility and ask a lot of the younger generation. Well, it certainly has been um, one of the great part of American history is that our earliest uh, founders all believed in uh, public service, being yeah. part of the government, um, being part of their church and uh, taking a leadership role. National service is such a great idea. I don't know why it has been proposed many, many times and it hasn't uh, taken hold yet. But I do worry that democracy is on the ropes in this country and in other countries. There is a concern about uh, the eff efficacy of government. Um, there's a disillusionment with, with institutions. There's, there's a real problem out there, and I worry about how we can resurrect a confidence in, in those institutions, um, especially now that we're, we're, we, we also criticize our, our founders and our, and our founding history so much. What do you think about that? Well, I, 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 again, I, for the, in the short term, I think the next few years are going to be very rough. Um, no matter who gets elected, I think it's going to be hard to govern this country, probably starting with the midterms. You know, if the Democrats take a shellacking in the midterm elections, uh, that will really uh, narrow the capacity of President Biden to get much done in the last two years of his presidency. Um, and whoever gets elected in 2024, it's just going to have a there's going to be a lot of poison in the system at that still. We're going to have come through a rough, rough period. I mean, even now we're, we're talking about whether the United States is already in a recession. Um, you know, given the fact that our leaders only a few months ago were saying we had a strong economy, uh, to see us going to recession um, is sobering because it, it just tells you how hard this is going to be. But I would say, Patricia, that I think that there are people being drawn into the public life today who, who are very positive and offer a great deal of hope. Let me give you one of my favorite examples you, you and I both know, uh, and that is a fellow named Wes Moore. Now, at the time when we're talking together, he has just won a Democratic primary in Maryland to become the, to become the next governor. And it, it, he appears to be a very, very strong candidate now. And it's very, he's got a really good chance of making it. Well, you and I know Wes Moore as a fellow who was a military veteran, did some great things at Black, did some very important things back in his home state of Maryland. Uh, went on from there, though, to come to, to New York to, to run the Robin Hood Foundation. The Robin Hood Foundation, as you know so well, Patricia, is the, is the biggest anti-poverty organization in New York City. It serves in a huge number of people, very much on a parallel track with Common Good. Well, here we have Westmore holding his hand up and saying, I'd like to try this. He's exactly the kind of person we've been looking for. And I think there are many other Westmores back there who are discouraged right now. But if they see that there can be some breakthroughs, it's going to make a major difference. So we got a few done. If you got really, some really, really good people coming through, that will encourage others. I think this national service idea has still got the potential to catch on. You're right. It's been too slow. But for a long time, you know, even conservatives have been been for it. William Buckley was a big national service guy, and he wanted mandatory national service. We're only seeking voluntary national service right now. But I I, I have a lot of hope. Look at the look at the number of uh, black young women now who have um, 
come into our public life and the differences they're making, say, with the Stacey Abrams in Georgia, um, you know, who's really been very encouraging for what what can what can change. But think of others. Think of the you know the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. Those are both formed by young black women in their twenties and thirties, uh, young women who, who had a lot of moral courage. And, you know, stood up for what was right. And as I say, I don't agree with their politics, uh, but I'm really impressed with the fact that there are so many who've stepped into the public arena and really care for more than what we saw in the 60s and 70s. And I think more diversified uh, coalition of people. And by the way, I, in, in, in my judgment, the, the, the older folks uh, can play, play this role uh, as advisors and, and sponsors and mentors and philanthropists, for frankly, who can invest in young people, uh, that will make that major difference. Smart about this. We will develop some multi-generational um, uh, alliances. So young folks and older folks can work together uh, in trying to do this. Young people can bring that energy, that, that, uh, that freshness, that sense of the future. But older people can bring the wisdom that comes from being in the arena. You know, the mistakes they've made and how they got banged around. That's really important for the young people to hear about that. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged that major universities are now taking a much stronger interest in leadership development. Uh, at, I was just down in California. I'm in California as we speak. And I can just tell you that Stanford University, first class university in this country, they have raised $750 million for leadership development. $750 million is a lot of money for, for development, but that only shows how serious they are about it. The Yale Law School, which is a very, very good law school, sort of number one or two or three here in the country, depending on your, on your assessment. Uh, but nonetheless, they've now committed to raising a lot of money uh, for leadership development for people who are going to law school. But one day, we'll ha- many of them will be you know, leading in the public arena. They'll be in the nonprofit world. They'll be really in the political world. They'll be in a Well, you know, law schools already, they already have a lot of leaders uh, in the arena uh, on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, but they, but their, their sense is that the, so many of their students do go on to run organizations that it would be healthy to have greater efforts made to prepare them for that. So they'll be successful at it. Is there is there something in in what you do with your leadership institute where you teach yeah. integrity and ethics and that yeah. part of it? Because I think the character piece of this is so important, particularly today when we yeah. see so many people taking advantage uh, of the political circumstances and and running on um, very divisive um, messages. Yes, you're right about that as a, as a general proposition. And at, at Harvard, we have started a center on leadership uh, that I, uh, Ron Heibitz and I were there in the founding and I ran it for some 19 years. Um, and we raised, we made money. I thought one of the most important things we could do was to, re, re, was to raise money for scholarships and be able to reach out to people who ordinarily don't, get, aren't able to afford going to a major college or university. And we've created about a thousand fellowships over the last uh, couple of decades for, for many, 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 many for women, many, many, many for people of color, uh, a many, a growing number for veterans. Uh, but, but we take quite seriously uh, 
the idea that you can train up to a point. You can't you can't turn out uh, you know just leaders. It's not you know it's not a McLeader factory of some sort. Uh, rather, it is that you know you can uh, accept and then work with and and give a lot of training to uh, young people who have high aspirations but low income. Uh, but I think they're going to be the, the very people who are going to be so critical uh, to pulling us through. So uh, we, we're proud of what the, the, the folks who've gone through the program at, at, at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Um, many of them are going on to very, very big things in life, and we're, we're proud of them. A lot of them are going to have, have been through military service, for example. Um, Harvard doesn't get a lot of volunteers for military service these days. Um, but with these fellowship programs, a lot of veterans now want to come. They are coming. They're in training. And many are getting ready to run for public office. Do you find veterans to be uh, trained to be leaders uh, more often than yeah. Um, yeah. young people who haven't gone through that kind of yeah. training? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think the, the, the rigor, the expectation, the toughening up, the, uh, the question of meeting standards that you've got, you know, you need to, you, you, you're going to have a group of people, men and women under your command, if you get a, if you're a young officer and you're entrusted with not only their futures, but also, you know, for being, if you were in the Navy, I was in the Navy for three and a half years, you got to learn how to you know, steer a ship and a ship, a ship is a multi high multi-million dollar operation. Uh, you know, they're very expensive, but you're, you're right up there as a skipper at 21, 22, 23 years old. That, that's a, quite a dramatic uh, set, of, set of responsibilities. And I have found, as a general proposition, some of the people I most admire in public life today are coming home from Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, uh, having served. Um, and I would just the young man that I worked with for a number of years, and we've been close for over 20 years now, but his name Seth Moulton. Uh, he's, in, uh, he's a member of Congress. He's a Democrat. But uh, Seth went in the Marine Corps. Coming out of Harvard, he went in the Marine Corps. He had three tours, really tough tours in uh, Iraq. Came back, he was all ready to um, start school. He was going to go to the business school, Harvard Business School, and to the Kennedy School. We had fellowships for him. When he got a call from General Petraeus, who had just been asked by the president um, to, to have a surge of uh, American forces in Iraq and get this thing over with. And Petraeus called Seth and said, Seth, I need you. Okay, would you be willing to put your uniform back on? I know you want to go, go, you know, you want to go to school now. Your parents really don't want you to go back to Iraq, but I need you. Would you do that? And Seth, of course, that will do it. And he did. And he had he had a four tours. He was in he was in very dangerous situation. Uh, and now he's a significant member of Congress. Uh, he's, he's setting some of the standards. Some people think he's too tough. You know that he's too disciplined. That he really then. I don't agree with that, but nonetheless, I think that um, the military also really, really puts a pressure on for people of character and people of integrity. And I think that is a major test of leadership development. And by and large, you know, there have been some exceptions of the kind I mentioned earlier with Eric Brydens, but by and large, I think the military has been a, a very, the best, the best training ground we have. Uh, for developing leaders for the long term. Well, they get into life and death circumstances, so uh, they have to be good and they have to be caring about their entire community, yep. not just their own 
uh, advancement. So right. I would think so. Um, so. So let me ask you though: one of the things that you bring up in your in your book is creative collaboration. Yes, which I think is a wonderful idea. I mean, we're seeing it so much in these movements. I, I don't know if you noticed today that a group of young Capitol Hill staffers um, are protesting in front of the majority leader's um, office, Chuck Schumer's office, for climate change. Um, and of course, you mentioned a few other uh, movements. Um, but what what is what, can you explain what you mean by creative collaboration? Sure. Why it's so important? Yeah, and I, I really appreciate you asking that question, uh, Patricia, because you know it's not as widely understood as it might. But here's the point: that for much of history, especially recent centuries, you know, we've talked about the importance of a single individual, you know, the man on the white horse, so to speak, who would come into into town and clean things up and you know the western movies and that sort of thing that was that was sort of the the loner out there but heroic heroically helping his country uh or society uh succeed and in our minds if you think of jack kennedy who was one of the who was held up as one of the sort of um, potentially great men but he excited the country um, there's no question about that and when we think about Kennedy, we do think of him, one of the pictures that I think is uh, most memorable is of Kennedy in the Oval Office uh, late in the afternoon at dusk. And it's, it's a black and white photograph. And he's, he's, he's in the office alone. He's standing over at a desk. He's contemplating the globe. And, and you feel, looking at it, this man has all the cares of the world on his shoulders. Uh, and we've asked this one man to pull us through. And, you know, he and Kennedy, and my judgment was a fine president. Um, but but today you wouldn't ask you wouldn't ask a person to take on all that responsibility. The world has become too complex and too interrelated. And so what we talk about today is the idea of, of uh, leadership from the bottom up and leadership that is more um, collaborative. Uh, and the picture that I would I would suggest that captures the difference between Kennedy and today. There's a picture of Barack Obama uh, down in the Situation Room when, when we're going after Bin Laden, and Obama is there listening to the to the military leadership as they close in on you know for their prey, and they're almost there. And what you see is the excitement Obama has, but he's surrounded. He's it's not a single individual down in the Situation Room. He's surrounded by a Secretary of State. Secretary of Defense, a CIA director, a Treasury Secretary, and a National Security Advisor. There are seven or eight people in the picture. Uh, and it illustrates the fact that no one person can do all of the things we need to have done today. They're it's too complex. It's too difficult. Um, and you need a team and a team that can not only work within itself. And, and frankly, we need a lot more teamwork from a private sector. And innovation in Silicon Valley, I've been asked to speak to folks in Silicon Valley about how do we how do you succeed with teams? Now, it's a good question, but we need we need teamwork that works its way up from the bottom, that works with the, the leader at the top. You still need a strong leader at the top of these organizations. The top, the top leader has to have a few people around, too, who are you know who are very good at what they do. Uh, but that, that's what succeeds today in life. It is constructive collaboration. And I think it is, it's much, it's enriching too, to know you have a team that there's people have your back. That's one more reason why the military, you know, is so important. You know, in the military, nobody gets left behind. You're on the battlefield, they'll come get you. 
But that's not what we have enough of in the private sector. It's sort of every man for every woman for himself, mostly every man for himself. That is such an important message. That is so key. That is so important. When I think of Silicon Valley, I think they they work in teams. The way mm-hmm. they collaborate, is, it demands that they be able to work together in teams, yeah. coming up with different ideas. Um, and of course, um, people in service in the army and whatever are, are working in teams. Um, it, it, that's so interesting. I hope you keep harping on that one because I think that's such a... a revolutionary way to really look at I would not have looked at that picture of Obama in the same way had you not described it that way it's interesting I I appreciate that is it is it is a a serious lesson in the book and I I I appreciate you encouraging me well I also think you know and it's been written about different (coughs) books you know we has become I uh, would how Robert Putnam might say it in in his latest book but the idea that there's so much I instead of community and going back to the idea of creative collaboration really um, gets us back to we, which I think is what we need to do in this country. I agree. Well, that was, that's what common good is all about, isn't it? I mean, you've been working in this, this field for a long time, you know, with, with significant success. So you must be, must be proud of that. But I, I'm sure you're an apostle for this kind of approach to leadership, too. You know what? It's um, it's it's humbling to see that there is so much division now, and um, and it's still so difficult to yeah to to change. I, I mean, I don't know if you're if you're if you're thinking on leadership would suggest any ideas for overcoming um, this division. Obviously, it's about maybe getting the right leaders in and these young people who do work collaboratively in their movements. Um, you mentioned John McCain is one of yes. uh, your favorite leaders who also worked across the aisle, as have you. So it, yeah. is that, what's the secret sauce for that, do you think, for, for leaders? Well, I, 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 I do. I, we, um, my old friend Mark Shields, whom we lost recently, um, yeah, used to point out to me that the two, two political figures who were very, very good at uh, dealing with the, uh, diversity uh, and, you know, having people of different backgrounds, different colors, different ethnic backgrounds work together. And you know, two people he saluted in sports. One was uh, Jack Kemp, who's no longer with us, uh, but the other was Bill Bradley, who's fortunately still with us and who was a senator. Jack Kemp was in the House. And the, the point Mark made was that they were both terrific at diversity because they were in professional sports and they traveled with their teams a lot. You know, they had two or three guys who share a bedroom when those old, in the old days. And they, were, they got used to, the, the, the white players got used to working with black players a lot earlier, you know, than that happened in, in civilian life. The Jackie Robinsons of that day were accepted and embraced by people uh, on, on the ball field uh, that, that made a major difference. And, and it sent a message that we can work together, that you can work across these differences. And it's really important that you, that you seek the common good, uh, the good for what's best for all of us. Uh, but ball players can do that. I think you know, it's an interesting time when you know, we shouldn't belittle um, what, what, the, what the ethics that ball players can bring uh, and how they can inspire younger generations 
Um, uh, not all of them. There's always some bad apples, as you well know. Uh, but generally speaking, professional athletics has been a uh, has come a long way uh, in and developing a new, more uh, more diversified society. They've helped push it forward. Certainly, they've helped push yeah. progress forward. I, I was happy to see one. Of, I think it was the the Golden Gate Warriors. I'm so bad at yeah. sports, but the <laughs> is that the right team name? <laughs> But, but the coach came out and concerned, we have to do something about guns. Yes. yes. And it was very inspiring. Exactly. It's like the, the player, you know, the football player took a knee, you know, uh, and, and, and on the football field and paid a price for it. Um, but it was the right thing to do. And I think, I think it has changed the, 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 you know, the interior, the interior, you know, there are other sports, women's soccer teams. Uh, American women's soccer teams have done so well and stood up for, you know, gay rights and other things uh, that's made a major difference. To me, one of the triumphs of the recent years that gets forgotten is how far we now have come on gay rights and how quickly uh, the country changed on that. You know, when you think back, it took it took women 60, 70 years to 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 be uh, earn the vote. You know, we, we, we've got these and these other examples now and, and the gay rights. It's been done so quickly. It was like happened in just a matter of less than ten years, in some ways, um, and that's that's progress. So I think I think there is there's room for progress. We shouldn't all we, we don't need to hide under our beds and worry about the, you know what we ever got there. What we need to do is don't retreat. Let's rally. Well, I think that's fantastic. There's this. I, I just have a, a question about something that can either divide or bring us together and that's social media and the internet yep i, I i'm a, i'm ba- i confess to be bamboozled by this i don't know quite how to get it under control i do think there's a better chance that uh, somebody under 30 is going to find the answer that, than someone over 70 um and uh, there's going to be some certain things patricia we need to leave we need to leave it to the younger folks because it's, it's such a you know, social media is a natural part of life. However, you know, it's, it's also true, of course, that social media has become a two-edged sword. So it, it had so much promise in the early days, it would give access to people who didn't have a voice in our national life. You know, you could go on and you could tweet and you could t- tell other people how to, where to jump off. Uh, and it was very valuable. But now with all the disinformation that people are, are pouring into the, into the bloodstream, and misleading people, and, and, and I think encouraging uh, white supremacists. Um, is there's so much happening that's so negative on about social media. It's the other side of the of the of the blade, um, and it's a it's a real problem. And I, I I don't I don't confess to understand it. I do think that what we need for now from our leaders is more transparency, more accountability, winning back the trust. Um, uh, of the American people. If we can do that, if our leaders can do that, uh, we can ward off some of these dark voices, uh, these, these evil voices that are out there picking apart the democracy. Our democracy is, is not safe. And democracy is, it doesn't come automatically with the, with, you know, with the keys to the kingdom. Uh, you have to, every generation has to fight for it and, and struggle for it in some fashion. And we're certainly getting our share now. We're getting more than our fair share. And on that note, I want to thank you so much, David, for joining us today. And I hope we can have you back. 
Well, I hope so too, but I, I'd love to see you again. But I, again, congratulations on what you're doing, Patricia. Common good. Well, uh, congratulations on an extraordinary book. Everybody should read it. It's absolutely wonderful. There's so much in there. I'm, I've been pouring through it. So thank you so, so much, David. You take care. We'll see Great each other. Great to see you.